2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer here at HowStuffWorks. And if you are a longtime listener to Tech Stuff, you know every year... For for almost ten years now, at the end of a, a calendar year, we make predictions about what is going to happen in technology for the following year. And every year, I try to go back and look at those predictions and see how well they matched up to what actually happened. And usually, if I'm being really generous, I get about fifty percent right. Uh, But it's always fun to try and make those predictions. And sometimes you're making predictions you don't want to come true and you hope that you end up being wrong. Uh, There were a few of those in the 2017 predictions. We'll have to see whether they ended up being the ones that turned out to be wrong or not. Uh, Last year, I also had the good fortune to call upon some of my friends in the tech journalism space and they joined me for the show and gave me a prediction or two about what they thought was going to happen the following year. So we'll talk about what their predictions were as they t- you know, came out through the show. So I'm going to tackle this by order of the predictions we made in the episode. So we're not going chronologically through 2017 again. We just did that. But instead, we're going to look at these predictions and kind of try and guess how well they did. Uh, so the first prediction that I made was that we would see a lot of VR and AR uh, everywhere at CES. In fact, these first few predictions were, are all CES-related because CES takes place in January every year. That's the Consumer Electronics Show. It's a big trade show that happens in Las Vegas every year. And we were getting ready to go, and I was trying to think of the things that were going to be a big deal at CES 2017. And I said that VR and AR would definitely be up there. And that was true. VR and AR were huge, huge types of technology, uh, categories of technology that were on display at CES. Although these days we tend to use the term mixed reality instead of just virtual reality or augmented reality. Uh, however, 2017 would not see all of the products and concepts that were on display at CES make it through to the end of the year. Some of those ended up fizzling out. For example, Intel came to CES and showed off a cool mixed reality headset concept called Project Alloy, though the implementation needed some refinement. It was pretty big and clunky. It didn't create a smooth experience that people were hoping for either because it was using uh, a different methodology for head tracking, uh, external head tracking. As it stands, Intel would end up shelving Project Alloy at some point over the summer of 2017, Uh, It didn't really make the news initially, it was only afterwards that the company came forward and said it was having trouble finding partners interested in making the device. So while they had developed the internal technology for Project Alloy, they were having trouble finding anyone that would actually produce the hardware. Now, part of this issue probably stemmed from the fact that Microsoft was launching its own mixed reality headset platform. And they were attracting a lot of interest from various partners. And so all these companies that might have worked on Project Alloy were instead kind of hitching their wagons to Microsoft. Uh, Intel continues to invest in technologies that either play directly or indirectly into mixed reality technology. So it's not all a loss. It's not like Intel got out of the game entirely. They just said, well, Project Alloy, as it stands, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I also said that there would be a lot of smart home and automation stuff on display at CES, uh, which is kind of a no-brainer. Some of these predictions, I admit, are, are kind of lame because anyone could have said this. It's like saying, if you jump into the ocean, you're going to get wet. Well, the Internet of Things continued its journey into becoming part of everything we can imagine, whether you can make a good case for it to be there or not. For example, Kerastase, L'Oréal, and Withings, or We Things, if you prefer, partnered to create the Kerastase Hair Coach hairbrush, which sends information from the brush to a smart device like a smartphone or a tablet to give you feedback on how well you're brushing your hair. I see no point in this, but then I have no hair, so brushes are sort of not my bag to begin with. But Other devices like coffee makers, connected displays, things like that, they fit more into what we come to expect from connected smart devices. So there was a mixture. There was stuff that we could see a practical application for right away, and other stuff that seemed more frivolous or just absurd. I also said that there would be a lot more driverless car technology on display at the 2017 CES show, and that was for sure the case. Everyone seemed to have connected cars or autonomous cars or both. Chrysler showed off an electric minivan with autonomous capabilities called The Portal. Faraday Future, the automotive startup company that we talked about back in 2016, and still seems weird to say automotive startup company, although you could argue Tesla did the same thing, they showed off their FF91 concept, and this one was a slightly less futuristic looking vehicle than their sports car concept they showed off the year earlier. It's still pretty sleek and and sexy, just more in a utilitarian approach than sports car. The FF91 is supposed to be able to park itself, so it's semi-autonomous. Toyota showed off a concept of a vehicle that would be able to monitor the conditions and moods of the people inside the car, dynamically adjusting conditions, and even the route based on that feedback. It could also take over if you wanted to, so that was another concept that had this semi-autonomous approach. There seemed to be a lot of uh, of concepts that would allow for human control and then handing off that control to a computer if you wanted to. I also said there'd be a lot more drone stuff at CES, and there were tons of them. Uh, one drone was the hover camera passport, which can hold a position around you and take photos of you just in case you wanted some robo paparazzi treating you like a Hollywood superstar, I guess. There were tons of other flying drones from various manufacturers, many equipped with high-definition cameras, and just a few years ago, just the cameras would have cost tens of thousands of dollars. Now you can find these style cameras on flying machines that you can control by remote control for less than a grand. It's kind of crazy. These devices really serve as evidence of how an emerging technology can become commonplace in just a few years. Uh, There was also an underwater drone called the Power Vision Power Ray that is a fish finder and a fish hunter all in one. It can carry baited lures and help you snag a fish. Uh, This drone is a tethered drone. It has to be connected to its power source, and that makes sense because it also helps prevent it from drifting too far away and then sleeping with the fishies. Uh, I also said there'd be a lot of 360 degree cameras and there were quite a few of those on display at CES, but this is also where things get a little confusing because there's no real standardized format for 360 cameras. Uh, In my mind, if you say 360 camera, I think of a camera that is capable of taking an image in a 360 degree arc. So a full circle around the the, the axis of the photographer, in other words. It'd be like if you were standing in a place took a photo, turned to the right, took another photo and just did like a panoramic photo in a full circle. That's what I think of it. 360 degree cameras. And then you would use some other device like a phone or a headset to view the image and you could turn around in place and see the complete image as you turn in a physical space. That's what I think of. But some companies capture only 180 degrees of arc. Some are capable of capturing 3D images, some are only 2D. Some people refer to these as VR cameras. I don't really like that term. I don't think of it as VR. To me, virtual reality requires a computer-generated environment. It needs to be a virtual environment, not just a video overlay. Otherwise, I would argue any movie is a virtual reality film. Uh, Granted, typically you can control the point of view because you could turn your head and you can change the perspective you're looking at, but that's the extent of interactivity for most of these computers, and I don't really think of that as being true virtual reality. I feel like you have to be able to affect your environment in some way, apart from just being able to change your perspective. But anyway, there were a ton of these at CES. There was the Views VR camera, the Hublo 4K 30 frames per second 3D video camera, the Lucid Cam 180 degree 3D personal camera, the Insta 360 Pro The list goes on and on. There were just tons of them. There were drones with 360 degree camera capabilities. It was just really popular technology on the floor. I'm not really sure that that popularity has translated to great commercial success. I don't know that there have been a run on these sort of cameras. I don't think they've received like huge sales figures and I haven't seen very many implementations that managed to get beyond this sort of gimmicky feel for the technology, but it's very early. So it may be that someone is really working on a really cool implementation that's going to be the killer app, in other words. I did not predict... All the voice activation stuff, however, and there was a lot of that on the show floor as well. You could find voice-activated assistants incorporated into tons of different products, particularly in the automotive sections of the show floor. And you could also find the technology incorporated into other gadgets, such as Amazon's Alexa being included as a feature on LG's Smart InstaView refrigerator. So you can ask your refrigerator if it's running, and then tell it jokes. I also didn't predict that smartwatches would have a less prominent space at CES 2017, though I really should have seen that one coming. Smartwatches are a category that have never really taken off, with the possible exception of Apple's watch. And there were some notable departures in the field the year before, particularly Pebble once it got acquired by Fitbit. But while smartwatches were mostly a no-show, fitness trackers were everywhere at CES 2017 and they continue to be really popular. And I like the concept of fitness trackers, but I honestly wonder how viable the category is for growth. After all, I have a tracker that works just fine, so I don't anticipate needing to replace it for a while, even if another one comes out that has more features than mine has, unless those features are just incredibly compelling. There's just not really any incentive on my part to upgrade. So... My feel is that once you hit market saturation, where all the people who want one of these essentially have one, your your market dries up. You don't really, I mean, how do you sell another fitness tracker to someone who already has one unless they just happen to have this kind of obsessive collection mentality? But at CES 2017, it was clear that many companies feel strongly that we've not yet reached this point. Now we'll move out of the CES predictions into some of the other ones I did. I made this prediction about Apple. I said the new iPhone will be a bigger and bolder departure from the tr- traditional design. Uh, I was thinking this because it was the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. So I thought, well, Apple's going to have to do something to set it apart because this is, you know, we, we set great importance on these things like 10 year marks, even though you could argue that's just completely arbitrary. We make it very important. That being said, the 10th anniversary of tech stuff is coming up pretty soon. I'm going to have to start thinking about that. Well, the prediction ended up being true in some ways, at least. Apple introduced two phones at the same time. In case you don't remember, there was the iPhone 8, which was more of an evolutionary product. It was kind of following in the same sort of design footsteps as its predecessors. And then there was the iPhone 10 or iPhone X which was a more dramatic departure from earlier iPhone designs. Now, as Apple says, quote, our vision has always been to create an iPhone that is entirely screen, end quote. That's actually from the Apple Store. And the iPhone X incorporates features like voice commands and facial recognition more than earlier iPhones, though the 8 has a few of those features as well. And some of the differences between the 8 and the 10, once you get past the screen, are really not that dramatic. So while the physical design might be a bit of a departure, I don't think it's really that bold of a change in design. And while both phones have more powerful processors and even more impressive photography algorithms and processing abilities, I don't know that I would call this prediction a total win because it wasn't quite as dramatic as I was hoping for. I also said we'd get a sneak peek at Apple's autonomous car technology, which we did, But only because some people in San Francisco have snapped photos of it. It's not because of Apple. McAllister Higgins, who has worked on autonomous car technology for a while, referred to the images of the car as the thing. But the code name for Apple's project is called Project Titan. The cars have these big roof-mounted sensor arrays that are all cased in white plastic. It's a very typical Apple approach. But they are extremely bulky looking and conspicuous. They also seem to contain a ton of sensors, including six LiDAR sensors, which is a bit of overkill. Apple applied for and received a permit to test autonomous vehicles on public roads in California in 2017. According to anonymous sources, so take this with a grain of salt, Apple shifted its strategy from building an entirely new vehicle to developing software that will power other manufacturers' autonomous cars. So there's been no official sneak peek from the company yet, just people spying on it from afar and then taking photos and uploading them to various social networking sites. I also said that mo- more states would create formalized rules for autonomous cars operating on state roads, which is true. In 2016, 20 states introduced self driving car legislation. In 2017, 33 states had car legislation for autonomous cars there. So we've seen more movement on that front. 21 states, Georgia among them, have enacted that legislation. Others, it's still kind of in the process of that. In addition, the U.S. federal government is weighing in. On September twelfth, two 2017, the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration released federal guidelines for automated driving systems. So that one was correct. Yay. I said that Uber will test an autonomous car with no one in the driver's seat in a major market before the end of 2017. And I haven't found any reports of that actually happening. I think perhaps Uber's 2017 was so rough that it may have slowed down their bullish adoption of driverless vehicle technologies. The company is still enthusiastically pursuing this technology, but perhaps with a bit less gusto than they were at the end of 2016 before all of their legal troubles began. Part of that may be due to a crash that happened in Arizona that put the brakes literally on their self-driving tests in Phoenix, San Francisco, and Pittsburgh. Police later determined the crash was not the Uber vehicle's fault. It was the fault of the other driver. And Pittsburgh residents have since become less enchanted with Uber over time As the company has seemingly failed to follow through on many of the promises it made when the original negotiations were taking place to use Pittsburgh as a test city, there were all these different promises Uber was making that it seems to not have uh, made good on. For example, there were reports that Uber was beginning to charge money for driverless car trips when initially the agreement was that all these test drives would be provided free of charge to passengers. So I have to call this one a miss, because as far as I could tell, there was no case where there was no one in the driver's seat. Uh, there was always an operator standing by from all the reports I could find. Uh, keeping in mind that I'm recording this December 15th, 2017, so I still have a few days for that one to come true. Maybe. I said that Hyperloop tests would prove to be sound from an engineering perspective, but would find the real challenge to be in the economics Of laying out a Hyperloop, and this one I think I nailed pretty well. There were several tests of Hyperloop-like technology in 2017. Most of them used Maglev methodologies, magnetic levitation, to provide for transportation pods to float above tracks. This is different from the original design Elon Musk had in mind, which was to use what he called air skis, in which the transportation pods would expel air downward against the track, and that would create lift, kind of like an uh, a air hockey table turned upside down and juiced up a whole bunch. But we did see several examples of the Hyperloop technology working, including a test that saw a pod accelerate to more than 200 miles per hour, though this is still far below what Musk's design originally proposed. And as for economic challenges, I wasn't the only person to suggest this. Uh, Timo Mitinen, an engineer from Finland, and I apologize for completely butchering his name, conducted a study about the potential for Hyperloop and concluded that the billions of dollars that would be necessary to make a working system meant the project had a chance of success that hovered somewhere around 6%. That being said, Hyperloop One held a round of funding in the fall of 2017 and raised another $85 million, so we haven't exactly hit that barrier just yet. Still, until we see a real construction project connecting two distant cities together, the Hyperloop remains an interesting proposition, but still is a long shot, in my opinion. Now, I have a lot more predictions to talk about, but before I get into all of those, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for
0: details. So in that predictions episode in 2017, my friend Ayaz Akhtar, a, uh, a guy who works for CNET, came on and he made a, a, a prediction. He said that Alphabet will get into wireless Internet service in a big way in 2017. And I would say he was mostly right about this. It's still pretty early days, all things considered, but clearly the momentum at Google is in wireless service. Alphabet is the parent company for Google, so I often will use the two interchangeably. We saw in early 2017 that the company began to downsize employees working in the Google Fiber division, and it was abundantly clear that the company was scaling way back on its plans to connect cities with fiber and compete against entrenched internet service providers. For one thing... Google had to continuously fight with various regulations that gave preferential treatment to traditional ISPs for stuff like access to utility poles. So it's hard to supply cable to customers if you're not allowed to access the existing infrastructure. And while Project Fi remains a phone plan alternative that you can use if you so wish, Google's push is much, much bigger than that. Ars Technica reported in February 2017 that the then-new wireless division in Google Fiber, called WebPass, had put out a call for a new general manager to head up the division. WebPass was a gigabit wireless company that Google acquired in October 2016. By June 2017, Google had expanded WebPass into its seventh market by opening up for business in Seattle, Washington. Google Fiber, the wired version, continued to operate in the cities where it had already been deployed. And in San Antonio, Google even dropped the price of its gigabit wired service to $55 a month, which was down from $70 a month in all other markets. Now, back to one of my predictions, I said that 2017 was going to be a make or break year for VR. And I said there'd probably be more VR experiences and amusement parks and arcade style businesses rather than at the home. For right now, that seems to more or less be true, though it's not necessarily going to be the case moving forward. Hardware manufacturers are trying to bring costs down to make the tech more attractive to a larger user base. HTC cut $200 off its VR kit, and there are a lot more developers creating virtual experiences for that hardware to leverage. This includes some big-name ports over into the VR experience, such as Skyrim, Complicating my judgment of this prediction is that neither HTC nor Oculus release sales figures, so it's hard to judge how well they're doing, though by August 2017, most analysts felt that neither brand had sold as many as 500,000 units. Sony fared better in 2016, claiming the company sold 915,000 units of the PlayStation VR, but that number hadn't increased by much over the following several months. According to TechCrunch, Sony's total units sold had topped at 1 million in June 2017. So, think of it this way. The hardware debuts in 2016 and sells 915,000 units. But then, over the next half year, fewer than 100,000 more units move off store shelves. That is not a good story. Gartner, however, estimates that VR has made it through the hype cycle for emerging technologies. Now, the hype cycle, it looks like a very sharp inverted uh, trench. Actually, it's more of a hill, right? So if you start at the very far left of a hype cycle chart, you have a technology that's just beginning to emerge. Then people get excited about it and it starts to follow this very sharp curve until it gets to the peak of its hype cycle. Then it starts to come down. As people begin to get frustrated, maybe they're waiting too long for the technology to get into their hands, or maybe the early builds of the technology don't measure up to what you imagined it would be. And so it sharply goes down the hype cycle until it hits a trough, uh, the trough of disillusionment, and then slowly starts to climb out of that and becomes a more stable technology. Gartner says that VR has finally done that. It's made that turn. Uh, Not everyone agrees with this. Some people think so, but not everybody. So maybe VR has made it out of the woods and we'll just see it get adopted more gradually. Uh, It has become an integral component of many different high-end and not-so-high-end amusement park experiences. So I was kind of right about this one. The next prediction came to us courtesy of Mr. Tom Merritt, the host of the Daily Tech News show, or co-host, I should say. He and Sarah Lane host that show. By the end of 2017, he said the combined number of subscribers to new over the internet live television services will be the number three largest cable company behind Comcast and Spectrum. In other words, it would be in front of Cablevision, uh, or what was then called Cablevision. Now, Variety reported in September 2017 that 22.2 million adults in the United States had cut the cord on traditional television service which was an increase from 2016, and that the number of people who have never subscribed to a traditional television provider service rose to 34.4 million people, which was an increase of 5.8% from the previous year. But that's not quite the same thing as what Tom was saying. He was talking about internet live television services, something like YouTube TV or Hulu's live TV service. Well, according to Variety, again, virtual subscription TV services like those actually helped reverse, though only slightly, a decline in pay TV subscribers. So if you include the virtual subscription services, the number of people in the United States subscribing to pay TV actually grew by 90,000 in the third quarter of 2017. This was a number that had been in decline. But once you take in these alternative methods and you factor those in, the numbers change. Considering this was eventually going to be a pretty major decline. It's it's kind of interesting, but it does not mean people stopped cutting the cord, uh, but rather some people are shifting their traditional pay TV services around. So they'll go from cable or satellite for their television to these virtual services. According to the Nielsen Total Audience Report for Q2 of 2017, which was the latest one I could get before this recording. 9,384,000 Americans get their television from broadcast and broadband access, meaning they're only using an antenna and or internet services to access traditional pay TV content. Cablevision, which Tom said would be pushed to fourth place after internet pay TV, was acquired by Altis USA in 2017 and was rebranded as Optimum. Now, the subscriber number for Optimum is 2.4 million. So even if we assume most of that approximately 9.4 million broadcast and broadcast uh, broadcom number from the Nielsen Report, even if most of them do not use internet for pay TV and they just get television over the air, there's still a really good chance that Tom was right on this one, that more than 2.4 million people are getting their television through the internet and thus pushing Optimum to the fourth place in cable. Uh, If you look at satellite providers, it's different. Satellite has larger numbers, but if you look at actual cable service, it would mean that Optimum is fourth place. I then had another prediction, which was that we'd see a big increase in Internet of Things devices that work with personal assistants, like Alexa or Google's assistant and that sort of thing, and that we would see a lot of growth in that area, which is true. There have been tons of different products that have compatibility with those services built into them. Even so, I think this is just the beginning, and we'll see an explosion of this technology in 2018, but I suppose I should probably save that one for the actual predictions episode. The next one came from Shannon Morse of Hack5 fame. I've had Shannon on the show a couple times. She said that Mirai, the big botnet that attacked Internet of Things devices, uh, would create big changes for manufacturers and spur on new conversations about Internet of Things security and lead us to ask tough questions, as well as develop some new monitoring software that will look for potential vulnerabilities before they can be exploited. Well, we did see a lot more talk about network security and Internet of Things security in the wake of Mirai, but golly, we sure saw some high-profile security breaches, too. Now, to be fair, some of those happened a while back, and we just weren't told about them until later. But while security remains an ongoing conversation we still see reports of vulnerabilities either going unchecked or purposefully unreported. For example, and this isn't an Internet of Things example, this is more of a computer-based example, but the WannaCry virus, which could have been way worse had it not been for one security researcher's discovery of an internet kill switch, it was based off a Windows vulnerability that was known by the NSA, but... The NSA had allegedly decided against making Microsoft aware of the vulnerability in order for them to create their own agency-specific exploit. A second virus targeting the exact same vulnerability called Petya caused problems mostly in the Ukraine later in 2017. Then there were the data breaches at Equifax, which affected more than a 100 million people. And then there were the ones that hit Uber. I don't think we'll ever go a year without some sort of data breach or system uh, uh, hijacking. Tech security is just, it's tricky. You've got a lot of systems that change with various updates. Sometimes that creates unintentional consequences, such as vulnerabilities. And you still have human beings in the picture. And, and we are manipulatable goofuses at times. I think Shannon is right that we saw more conversations about security I'm not sure that they did much good. I don't know that the Internet of Things devices of today, the general ones, are that much more secure than the ones we were talking about a year ago. But then again, there's no way to really know about all the attacks that didn't happen because people took the right action or companies put in the right systems. We don't know about the ones that failed because there's nothing newsworthy about that. We only know about the ones that succeeded. So... Maybe she is right, and it's quite possible she is, but it's hard to say. Back to some of my amazingly astute predictions, such as Moore's Law would become less of a factor, and now it would be more about optimization rather than pushing hardware capabilities. Well, Greg Yarrick, who works for ARM, the company that makes microprocessors, told the ENT back in May I do think we are approaching the limits of conventional scaling with silicon. If you just did the math, you could convince yourself that cost per transistor scaling will soon stop, and you get pretty pessimistic about the industry's future. Uh, this actually helps illustrate that Moore's Law is more about economics than anything else. You might be able to figure out a way to perpetuate Moore's Law, but the cost of doing so would be so high that it would not be profitable. It wouldn't make any sense to do it from an economic standpoint. So it's not just the technological barriers, but also the economic ones. Now, there are some other strategies we can employ, such as using three-dimensional processors, which will stack elements on top of each other and allow for shorter transmission distances between memory and processor. That could speed things up, even if we slow down on creating incredibly small components. According to MediaTek's chairman Tsai Ming-Kai, We may have only two more generations of shrinking transistors before we hit a real wall via physics. And making smaller components is expensive, so there's the question on whether you can make a return on the investment to build transistors that are that small. We've seen a lot more movement in optimizing software so it runs more efficiently on the hardware we've created, but I think we're still holding on to the stream of Moore's Law for a little while longer. I also said that more companies will move services to the cloud rather than having everything on local devices, which was kind of a no-brainer. According to all the articles I could find, that's the case, and it looks like it's still the beginning of a bigger trend to offload stuff like computing and data storage tasks to other platforms. According to Waterford Technologies, 41% of businesses are planning to increase their investment in cloud technologies, with 51% of big and mid-sized companies planning to increase spend compare spending on that compared to only 35% of smaller firms. So it's still going strong, but this one was kind of a gimme. All right, we're coming up to the last few predictions. But before I jump into those, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's c o n c u r.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story.
2: Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills.
0: is a host over at Twit. And Jason Howell says pushback on social media and oversharing online would happen in 2017. You'd start to see people back away from social networks in general. And keep in mind, he made this prediction uh, in the wake of the 2016 election, which had stirred up an awful lot of ugliness on all sides about fake news, about trolling, about abuse, And there were a lot of people who were kind of getting sick of social networks at the time. But it seems like this hasn't quite shaken out the way Jason originally imagined. According to a few reports over the summer, there was a slight dip in Facebook's active users during the summer months. But according to most analysts, that's pretty typical for that time of year. It just kind of happens. There were no indications of an actual decline in active users on a year over year basis. Twitter also saw a growth in 2017, though not at the rates that they want. According to the balance, Twitter added about 9 million new users from 2016 to the second quarter of 2017. Uh, there have been a lot of criticisms directed at social media in general and Facebook and Twitter in particular. again, in those areas of harassment and spreading false information. But it hasn't quite convinced people to abandon the format entirely. My next prediction was that Twitter would have a very rough 2017. Unless someone would acquire it, it could be in danger of going away, which is probably a little more doom and gloom than it merited, but I wanted to make a big prediction. There was this ongoing problem with harassment on Twitter, which is really only grown worse depending upon who you ask, whom you ask. It's it's pretty, pretty ugly. Twitter is still around, though. It's not teetering yet, but there have been some developments that show cause for concern. Jessica Virilli, who had been with the company for nine years, essentially the entire history of Twitter, left the company in t- December 2017. Uh, Virilli was the head of corporate development at, uh, over at Twitter and the lead in the company uh, acquisition efforts that it had throughout the years, but Twitter didn't make a move to acquire any other companies in 2017 at all. Business Insider reported that Twitter's ad business is, quote, demand constrained, end quote, which is business speak for advertisers aren't going to pay us more to do stuff. The Business Insider article identified two areas of opportunity for Twitter. One, was to create a better return on investment measurement for businesses so that they can see how their marketing dollars are paying off when they use Twitter. The other was to create better technology for smaller advertisers that can't depend upon big departments that larger companies have. The article also stated that users are leaving Twitter, though that contradicts the other report I saw earlier, Then again, a net gain in Twitter users could just mean that more people around the world are getting access to the basic technology, like smartphones, that allow you to get access to Twitter. The Motley Fool has a cautiously optimistic outlook for Twitter, but acknowledges the company still has a tough road ahead. It remains unprofitable, and the growth in users has slowed significantly. I said also that there would be new attempts to curtail fake news online, and we've seen efforts from Google, Twitter, and Facebook to combat the fake news issue. These haven't been uniformly successful. In fact, in recent events, there have been reports of fake news articles giving misleading information on these platforms and even rising to prominence through their algorithms. This will likely be a continuing issue in 2018, but it's definitely true that major companies are working hard to push back against the flood of misinformation out there. Whether it will be enough remains to be seen. I also said that there would be more automation in 2017, and there would also as a result be more advocates for a universal basic income concept because we would see automation take over some jobs that traditionally would be held by people. The story about automation and its effect on the job market continued throughout 2017. McKinsey Global Institute issued a report that predicts that by 2030, automation could eliminate as many as 73 million jobs in the United States alone. But the report also states that the economic growth that happens will create more than enough new jobs to accommodate existing workers, as well as new ones. So the report did acknowledge that the nature of the work would change quite a bit, This poses an enormous challenge, because how do you port somebody over from one job to another? It's not like the same basic skill set can be applied to any type of job. Forrester Research predicts that in 2018, AI automation will eliminate 9% of U.S. jobs, these jobs largely being in the white-collar sector. That's a sector that has relatively been safe from automation until fairly recently. And according to their research, Forrester says that the automation will only create 2% growth in jobs, so a 9% loss and a 2% growth offset. As for universal basic income, the concept has received a ton of media attention in 2017. The basic idea is that a government will provide a base amount of money to all of its citizens that are qualifying for such a, a program. Usually it's based on age. And regardless of that citizen's other sources of income, So let's just say, for argument's sake, that it's $20,000. Everyone would get the same basic $20,000. There are numerous examples of studies on this idea throughout the world, and there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not it would work. Meanwhile, more folks are eyeing the robots warily. This is another story I expect will continue to evolve in 2018, with more people calling for a serious discussion about universal basic income. And then Shannon Morse also had another prediction. Actually, when I talked with her, this was her, technically, her first prediction, but I played it second in the episode, and it was that net neutrality will have a big hit in 2017, like it'll take a big step back, and privacy protections will get stripped away to create a more surveillance state. Now, I also said that I thought net neutrality would suffer an enormous setback in 2017, As I mentioned earlier, I am recording this episode on December 15th, 2017. On December 14th, the FCC met to vote on whether or not to overturn the the regulations that had been passed two years previously that classified internet broadband as a public utility and gave the FCC the authority to regulate the industry. And just as I thought, just as everybody thought, anyone could predict it, it was not a secret, The vote came down to party lines, three for overturning, two against. So those rules are being overturned. Uh, Again, not a surprise. This was pretty much guaranteed to happen from the very beginning of 2017, which is why that prediction was so easy to make a year ago. It was uh, it would have been a shock for it to turn out any other way. There was a lot of drama to that story, too, throughout 2017. Uh, there there's an ongoing investigation into false comments that were left in support of overturning the rules, millions of them that were falsely filed, uh, attributing those comments to people, some of whom are dead and obviously could not have commented on the issue at all. So there's still that story that's ongoing. There's also going to be uh, some lawsuits that will be filed in the wake of this decision. So it's not a done deal. However, uh, you could easily argue that net neutrality did take a major setback in 2017, which is what Shannon and I were both saying. So we both get a big checkmark next to that one, although this was one of those cases where I think we both would have really liked to have been wrong. I also said that we're going to see some big movements in renewable energy with Google trying to go 100% renewable. And there was also the upcoming Tesla solar city merger, which was absolutely correct. Google did hit 100% renewable in December 2017. According to Vox, Google uses as much electricity as all of San Francisco. Google purchased three gigawatts of renewable energy capacity in order to hit this earlier stated goal of being 100% powered by renewable energy sources, although that's a little misleading. Google purchased renewable energy certificates, which are meant to guarantee a certain amount of renewable energy is allocated to something. But the actual electricity powering Google's operations may or may not come from renewable energy sources themselves. Google's purchasing certificates that represent renewable energy... That doesn't mean renewable energy is actually powering all of these Google centers. Google's paying a bill so that it might sell that renewable energy back to the market somewhere else. And this might sound a bit like a giant shell game to you, because I, I know it does to me. But Google is retire, retiring these certificates, so they can't just be bought and traded without anyone, you know, actually relying on the renewable energy. It has to be used. Otherwise, you would have these sheets of paper that would represent blocks of energy, but maybe no one's actually cashing it in, which seems really weird. Like, humans are bizarre. I don't get economics, guys. Technology, I barely have a grasp on. But I'll probably have to do a full episode on renewable energy certificates at some point and really explore how they work and whether it actually means companies are switching to environmentally friendly energy sources or whether it's just smoke and mirrors. And by the way, smoke and mirrors are not environmentally friendly. Well, that's it. Those are all the predictions I made for 2017. And I did all right, I think, better than many other years. Uh, but I want to try for 2018 to make some more specific, outlandish predictions. Things that will be easy for me to say, yes, it happened, or no, that totally did not happen when it comes time in 2018 for me to review all of my predictions and say whether I got it right or wrong. So in our next episode, I will lay out my predictions for 2018. And then after that, I will go home for a long winter's nap. So guys, if you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in 2018 on Tech Stuff, whether it's a technology I should talk about, a company, a personality, maybe there's someone you want me to interview or have on as a guest host. You should get in touch with me and let me know. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. We have an Instagram account, also techstuffhsw, if you want to follow along and watch all the pretty pictures come in with various hilarious commentary. Uh, we also stream live every single podcast recording at twitch.tv slash tech Just go there. You can find the schedule I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, so keep an eye out for that. You can join me there, be in the chat room, be part of the hoi polloi as we all hash out what this technology stuff means, yo. And I will talk to you again about 2018 really soon.